This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. My dad was like fantasizing about bondage. He said when he was in the Air Force over in Asia, he was trying things, but nothing. As far as we know, there's no murders over there. So he, w- he was just ramping up. So by the time he was in his late 20s, he had he was breaking and entering and he was stalking a lot. He actually, my dad actually prefers to stalk over murder. There was something there that was enough for a while. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. So this week's episode is part two of a three-parter. So if you haven't listened to part one of BTK, you need to stop listening right now and go back to last week's episode. But today, we're taking you through part two of what will end up being our three-parter on BTK and don't worry, guys. We still have Dennis Rader's daughter, Carrie, with us today as our first degree. But before we get started on that, Billy, what day is it today? It's National Hot Dog Day. <sighs> and it's also National Hammock Day. Yeah, you needed to really bring it back from Nothing the hot Nothing like day. a hot dog and a hammock. I don't eat hot dogs. Hot dogs are not for me. Me too. I don't like chopped up meat repurposed as a different sort of named meat. So I don't like them. All right. I like the the idea of a hot dog, but I don't I like, like a turkey actual, dog. I like a turkey dog. I like the dressings on a hot dog. I exactly. like some relish. The I like the idea of a hot dog when you're at a baseball game. Like everything else yes. surrounding the hot dog is amazing, but the hot dog, but itself, the hot dog itself is sick. I can understand that. Yeah. I wish it was a cheeseburger. Because, like, there's nothing better than a cheeseburger. (laughs) There is nothing better than a cheeseburger at all. And that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Last week, we took you through BTK's first five murders, which included four members of the Otero family and the murder of Catherine Bright. 
We left you with the reveal of BTK's first contact with the media and police after he left a letter in a book at the Wichita Public Library. At the time, the police had no idea that this letter from the man who would come to be known as BTK would be the first in a string of physical correspondences that BTK would send as he evaded them for decades. After this letter, BTK went underground for three years, not emerging again until 1977. But once he was back, he returned with a vengeance. We're going back to March 17th of 1977. It's 2020 now, so that's just over 43 years ago. And it was actually St. Patrick's Day of 77, and the U.S. president at the time was Jimmy Carter. People were listening to Love Theme from the Barbra Streisand version of A Star is Born, and The Pink Panther Strikes Back, Airport 77, and Slapshot were in theaters. Last week, we told you about Wichita, but today we're talking Park City. So Park City is technically 14 miles northwest of Wichita, but if you ask someone from Park City where they're from, many would just say, I'm from Wichita. Fun fact about Park City, in 2007, the city bought the home of Dennis and Paula Rader that they raised their children in, and they lived in for more than 25 years. They paid $56,000 for the home, and in July of 2012, they tore it down and built a park where it once stood. It was on the morning of March 17th, 1977, that Shirley Vane and her children were having a regular run-of-the-mill day. Shirley was 36 years old. Her kids were 8-year-old Stephen, 6-year-old Junior, and her youngest was 4-year-old Stephanie. The Vanes lived right down the street from their local grocery store, so even though her oldest Stephen was only 8 years old, it wasn't a big deal for him to run down the street to grab something for his mom from the store. So on this day, Shirley needed Stephen to grab some soup from her. So Stephen was at the door as Shirley called the grocery store owner to let him know that her little boy was coming. Stephen headed to the store and came back with the soup without difficulty. Nothing out of the ordinary, just a regular day. But all of that would change with a knock at the door. One of the children answered. A man with a gun pushed his way inside and shut the door behind him. Then hours passed. At 1 p.m., Sharon and James Burnett, who were neighbors of the Vanes, heard knocks at their door. They seemed frantic. It was Shirley's two terror-stricken boys, and they were begging for help. The police were called. When Officer Raymond Fletcher arrived, he and James Burnett, the neighbor, ran to the Vane home to see what was going on. And once police entered the home, they found Shirley's four-year-old daughter, Stephanie, crying on the floor. It was extremely dark inside the house. All the curtains were closed. Inside the master bedroom, they found Shirley Vane, and she was lying on the bed. She was nude. She had a plastic bag over her head and a pink nightgown over the bag. Her feet were towards the head of the bed, and the bed itself was just shoved up against the bedroom door. And the way in which Shirley's body was left was chilling and intricate. A piece of white cord and nylon pantyhose bound her hands behind her back. A large stretch of cord ran the length of her body, wrapped around her neck four or five times, and ran down her back to bind her wrists. The cord then ran down her legs and bound her ankles. The end of the cord was tied around the bedpost at the head of the bed. 
And it's interesting the way that BTK in this case chose to tie Shirley up. This is kind of intricate as far as bondage goes. And it kind of shows the evolution of the influence of bondage over his crimes. As police were taking in the horrific details of this scene, Shirley's traumatized children were telling them as best they could about what they'd witnessed and experienced. And here's what the children shared with the police. After this unexpected knock at the vein front door, a man with a gun forced his way inside. Stephen told police that he recognized this man. He had just seen him at the grocery store when he went to pick up the soup for his mom. In fact, this man actually stopped him and showed him a picture which depicted two people. And then he asked Stephen if he recognized either of them. The boy sheepishly said no, paid for the soup, and walked back. But looking back, though, it seems like this conversation that the killer struck up with the boy was intentional, and maybe even part of the killer's fantasy. Once the man was inside the home with the family at gunpoint, he tied the children up. This man also had a suitcase with him in the other hand. He forced the children into the bathroom, and then he barricaded the door shut with the bed in the master bedroom. Shirley begged the man not to hurt any of them, and he assured her that he wouldn't. News outlets reported that one of Shirley's sons watched what happened to her through the keyhole in the door. Shirley's autopsy reveals two bruised lines across her throat as if from a ligature. There were also small round bruises at the base of her throat. There were little dark circles that were consistent with indentations that fingers would make. Shirley's cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation. Something interesting that we need to point out is that BTK opted not to kill the children in the case of Shirley. And we know that he had previously done the opposite. Empathy has been a subject that we've woven and will continue to weave through this BCK three-part series. So there's this question that's being presented here. By now, BTK had at least one child. Dennis Reader's wife had given birth to his son, our first degree's brother, in 1975. After that, he never killed a child again. Empathy may not have been the reason for why he did or did not kill the children. He could have been interrupted. Maybe he ran out of time. We'll never know the truth, but it's certainly something worth considering. Right. And now we're going to fast forward to December 9th of 1977, which was about nine months after Shirley's murder. And while, you know, I'd normally tell you the top song in movies, none of that matters because the most significant thing that occurred on this day was the bizarre call that came into the Wichita Police Department. And I know it may be difficult to understand what the caller said in that recording. So if you couldn't make all of it out, here's what they said. Quote, yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox, unquote. And this call came in at around 8.18 a.m. from a payphone outside of a grocery store in Wichita. The mail caller asked the operator to transfer him to the emergency number of the Wichita Police Department, so that's what she did. And the police dispatcher attempted to get more information out of him, but he just eventually stopped responding and left the payphone receiver off the hook. 
An officer named John DiPietro was dispatched to the scene on South Pershing. He pulled up to the Salmon Pink duplex at 8.22 a.m. When he approached the home, he knocked on the door and waited for a response. There was none. He tried the knob, but it was locked. He walked around the perimeter of the house and moved toward the back of the home. As he scanned the yard, he immediately noticed a cut phone line dangling and blowing in the wind from above. And once he got to the back of the house, Officer DiPietra, he could see into one of the bedroom windows. And it was open, and it had no screen. So he yelled inside and called Nancy's name, and he got no response. He then reached his hand inside the window and pushed the drapes open. There he saw the body of a woman lying face down on the master bed. The woman would later be identified as 25-year-old Nancy Fox. Nancy's ankles were tied with a yellow shred of fabric, and her hands were tied behind her back with red pantyhose. And once Officer DiPietra realized the severity of the situation, he radioed for backup. Additional officers arrived and aided in kicking the front door of the home down. They rushed in, and once inside, they observed that it was extremely clean. In fact, one officer remarked that it was the cleanest house he'd ever seen. I wish I was more like that. Um... In the living room, they noted that there was a woman's white parka lying on the couch. Remember, it's December. It's Kansas. There was a lounge chair with a side table next to it. And on the side table, there was a half-smoked cigarette in an ashtray sitting right on top. On the kitchen table, the contents of Nancy's canvas purse had been dumped on top of it. And there was a telephone mounted on the wall. And the receiver had been yanked from the base of the phone, and it was lying on the floor. When police entered the bedroom, Nancy was laying face down on the master bed. There was a pink sweater covering her face and torso, and her purple undergarments were pulled down, her feet bound by yellow fabric. And there was a pair of pantyhose wrapped twice around her neck. There was also a pair of crumpled pantyhose lying on the floor. On top of the dresser, her jewelry boxes had been rifled through. A window in the master bedroom had been shattered and glass was lying on the floor. The screen from that same window had been cut out of the frame and had blown against the outside fence that lined the perimeter of the home. And when the police studied the window frame more closely, they saw fresh pry marks on the window lock and the screws to the lock were torn out and tilted back. Nancy's lingerie drawers had been pulled out and rifled through. And one of the lingerie drawers was lying next to Nancy's body on the bed. A blue nightgown was also lying next to her head. And once the evidence was processed, it was revealed that there was semen present on the nightgown that Nancy was wearing when she was killed. Nancy Fox's autopsy eventually revealed, like all the others, she too had been killed by strangulation. Following the murder of Nancy Fox, Wichita was on edge. There was a serial killer on the loose, one that called himself BTK. And he was steadfastly killing victims, one after the next. And there's no doubt that even hardened detectives were scared of this perpetrator. But the cops at this point had at least one more thing on their side, one more piece of evidence that could potentially aid in identifying this serial killer. They had a recording of his voice from when he called the police to draw them to the scene of Nancy Fox's homicide. Then in the following year, 1978, there was another massive shift in the life of Dennis Rader. His daughter, Carrie, our first degree, was born. And at this point, Dennis Rader was juggling caring for a newborn at this point, a toddler son, 
and he had been working at ADT for about a year. Another thing he was doing, he was fooling everyone in his life about who he truly was. And while Dennis Rader is pretending to be father of the year, working, attending church, etc., he still managed to find the time to engage and dabble in some of his favorite hobbies. Right, because on February 10th of 1978, local news station Cake TV received a letter from BTK which claimed responsibility for the deaths of Shirley Vane and Nancy Fox. In the letter, he also claimed to take the life of another victim, which he provided no name. But in hindsight, we can deduce that he was likely talking about Catherine Bright, who we told you about in part one. But in 1978, the police hadn't connected Catherine's case to BTK. The letter he sent made references to the Otero quadruple slings and provided details about that crime scene that only the killer could know. And after receiving the letter, the Wichita police chief held a press conference and he announced that a serial killer was at large and was threatening to strike again. Shortly after Cake TV received the letter, a second one was sent to the Wichita Eagle Beacon newspaper. The letter contained a poem named Shirley Locks, which was patterned after a nursery rhyme called Curly Locks. The poem did not provide specific details about Shirley's crime but did indicate the delight her killer took from Shirley's suffering. The poem's author described how Shirley knew she was going to die, quote, Thou shalt not scream, nor yet feel the line, but lay on cushion and think of me and death and how it's going to be. It gives me the fucking chills, man. Yeah. The writer expressed frustration over the lack of media attention directed towards him. Quote, How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Law enforcement was also mocked by the writer. Do the cops think all those deaths are not related? Golly gee, yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on vain unamusing. A little paragraph would have been enough. Oh no, it is not the media fault. The police chief keeps things quiet and doesn't let the public know there was a psycho running around loose, strangling mostly women. There are seven in the ground. Who will be next? End quote. The letter continued. Do the cops think that all the victims are tied up? Most have been women. Phone cut. Bring some bondage. Master sadistic tendencies. No struggle. Outside the death spot. No witness except the Vane's kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. I was going to tape the boys and put plastic bags over their heads like I did Joseph and Shirley and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would be. The writer then explained in detail what he had done to Josephine Otero, which we will not repeat here. He continued, you don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of Factor X. The same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Glattman, Boston Strangler, Dr. H.H. Holmes, the pantyhose strangler of Florida, the hillside strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous characters kill, which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It is a terrible nightmare, but you see, I don't lose any sleep over it. And after a few more paragraphs of these nonsensical ramblings, he went on to make some, you know, name suggestions for himself. And we obviously know that Dennis Rader ultimately named himself BTK. 
But according to him, it could have very well been any one of these other very, very clever names. The Wichita Strangler, the Poetic Strangler, the Bondage Strangler or Psycho, the Wichita Hangman, the Wichita Executioner, the Asphyxiator, or, and this one always gets me, the Garot Phantom. Okay, I have a little side note story. Jack and I have been talking about this for a while. We listened uh, to the last podcast on the left episode about BTK. Shout out to them. We we like that podcast a lot. Uh, and they uh, balance this art of like jokes and not jokes about a serious subject really well. And they do a f- one of them imitates like what the killer would sound like in like this caricature world. And one of them does BTK like deciding his name, like what his name should be. And it's like the Garot <laughs> Phantom. Pro- it's probably Henry. Yeah, it was yeah Henry. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. I don't know their name. Sorry. Sorry. Lost podcast. I don't know. I just listen while I'm running and crying at the cemetery. But <laughs> they, <laughs> what they were saying about these names is just, it's so, he's so desperate. He's so pathetic. Desperate. He's a desperado. It's like, oh, I'm the poetic strangler. First of all, your poems fucking suck. Oh my god, you're the you worst rock. writer. By by the way, like I know that we we try to read some of them, but like his grammar and his spelling is so fucking bad that you need to go and Google his poems because they're so terrible. Like the writing yeah. is so bad. It's right. painful. Apparently, when BTK started to get uh, widely publicized and, and they started publicizing these correspondences. Um, his wife, Paula, apparently said like, you fucking spell as bad as BTK because apparently this is not oh. unintentional. Appar- they didn't have spell check. This is how he yeah. wrote. Because like, I no. thought he was doing this on purpose to like, to, like uh, throw off. Throw him off. No, and that's, listen, that's how Ted Kaczynski was caught. Uh, not necessarily with misspellings, but with with the cadence of his language and the way that he uh, that he talked about things. And his brother said, you know what? That sounds like my brother. And you get these, it's a very similar thing. This guy just wanted to be heard. Zodiac, when you read Zodiac's letters, when he's upset because nobody's wearing buttons, buttons were a big thing in the late 60s. Like people mm-hmm. wore buttons all the time. He was so upset that people weren't wearing buttons with his logo on them. And you can smell the desperation off of that. But I thought that one of the things that was interesting in this, you know, we had talked about why he didn't kill any of the vain children. He gives a possible explanation here by saying that there was a phone call uh, yeah, that but, interrupted him. Yeah, BCK is also a compulsive liar. I do want to go back to this nickname thing. I think that there is a special place in hell for people that try to give themselves their own nickname. And I mean this in the most like innocuous way, way possible, an innocent way possible. If somebody is like, yeah, I'm like, I'm the bullet, right? Like everybody, whatever. <laughs> and it's like, dude, no, you're, a nickname is literally like you cannot give yourself a nickname. So number one, at the, like the most innocent way possible, like, dude, no. But then also it's like, like you were saying, the desperation is so palpable and insane. And it's like, he's trying, he's number one, comparing himself to all of these uh, infamous serial killers that have had these names created for them from the terrified public. And he's just like, oh my God, like, I'm not getting my name yet. Like, I got to get my name. And so he's just giving people examples of what to call him and it's just so i think my biggest takeaway from btk is like not only is he a sadistic disgusting serial killer but he's also like a douchebag 
loser. Okay, so regardless of our thoughts of BTK, fear of BTK was gripping the suburbs of Wichita, and everyone was terrified that they might be next. Because remember, this killer didn't discriminate between victims based on age or sex or literally anything else at all. So his next target could be anyone. So everyone lived in fear, and it was about to get worse for a woman named Anna Williams. Right. That's because on the evening of April 28th, 1978, 63-year-old Anna Williams was returning home after a fun night of square dancing with friends. When she arrived home, she let herself in and walked inside. And as soon as she did, she noticed out of the corner of her eye that the door to her spare bedroom was ajar. And this was odd because Anna always kept that door shut. She slowly walked into her bedroom and noticed that one of the drawers to her vanity was open. And then on the floor, there was a trail of her clothes that had not been there when she left. There was also an empty jewelry box that was overturned on the dresser. So it was slowly dawning on Anna that someone had burglarized her home and had gone through her most intimate belongings. So she's horrified. She runs to the phone in the kitchen to call police. She picks up the phone, but the line is dead and had apparently been cut. She ran out of the house and to a neighbor's. The police arrived and did a walkthrough of Anna's home with her. They discovered that one of the basement windows of her home had been busted out. And in the master bedroom, the bed had been pulled away from the wall. Clothes were cut like the type BTK liked to use to bind his victim's wrists. They were found next to her bed. And by now, all of these characteristics, these had finally become known as earmarks of BTK. And finally, the police could recognize them when they entered a crime scene. So responding officers in this situation knew to call the designated BTK investigators immediately. Anna's fate that day was determined by the fact that she arrived home later than BTK expected her to. Because on this day, for whatever reason... Dennis Rader had a budget for his time. And when Anna didn't walk into the house, when BTK expected her to, he got all out of whack. Maybe he had a thing with one of his kids. Maybe at a church function. An obligation with his wife. An ADT security emergency. Who knows? The point is, is that Dennis Rader had somewhere to be, and he aborted his plan after waiting for longer than he expected to. And Anna had just barely evaded being murdered by BTK. So it's understandable that she never wanted to sleep in this house again. Because right prior to this burglary, her husband had just died. She was newly widowed. So there was no way she was ever going in there ever again. Because she knew that BTK had been in her home. I I mean, I would burn the place down, personally. Oh, yeah, rightfully so. And another interesting thing about this break-in at Anna's is that when police looked at this crime, they wondered whether or not that BTK had actually intended to target Anna or not. Her 24-year-old granddaughter often stayed at her house because it was closer to her work, so police theorized that it might actually be Anna's granddaughter that BTK had his sights on. And in fact, her granddaughter was scheduled to sleep over the night of the break-in, but her plans changed last minute and she ended up staying home. One of the most curious things about BTK is, is how he selected a particular victim and why. So he would just he would just fixate on people and then he would determine like based 
um, where they lived, something about them would make him want to stalk them. And then he would work on it and figure it out. Like, okay, are they somewhere that I, I can get in and out of, you know, like he, he, he worked this up for a very long time with these people. And, and he would keep several options. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but he would have several options any one time of someone he might eventually knock off. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop, or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways, and with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences, and before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Police were sure that the true target at Anna Williams' home was her granddaughter, but BTK was about to throw them yet another curveball. 
Two months after the break-in at Anna's house, on June 15th of 1978, Anna went with her daughter to pick up her mail. The last time she had checked was three days prior on the 12th. In the mailbox, there was an envelope addressed to Anna Williams in big block letters with a letter inside. She opened it, and inside there was a poem titled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? The writer of the poem complains about waiting for hours inside Anna's home for her to get there and the disappointment he felt when she never arrived. And there was also a drawing of a naked and bound woman. Next to the woman in this drawing was a scarf and a piece of jewelry. And these two items happened to be the ones that were stolen from Anna's house during the burglary. So this is absolutely terrifying because this is BTK stalking her. So Anna had been BTK's intended target after all. And this sick fuck was going to make sure that she knew it. And BTK also sent an identical letter to the one he sent Anna to Cake TV. Clearly, he was really going after this media attention he wanted so badly. By now, the police were under tremendous pressure to catch this psychopath. But the police could not accurately predict the actions of this killer which made it not only damn near impossible to catch him, but made the task of protecting the community from him all the more difficult. So the cops are feeling the heat, and they try to get resourceful. Right, and they're having this trouble anticipating because BTK is breaking some of the norms that serial killers that happened right before him presented. So the reason they assumed that Anna uh, Anna was not actually the target at Anna's younger, beautiful granddaughter was the target is because they're like, they'd never experienced a serial killer targeting women of this demographic before. So he keeps switching certain things up, not his MO, not some certain things that he can't go without, like the bondage, the bindings, but his victimology is all over the place. Like police don't know who to encourage to be more careful. Everybody should, because anyone could be one of his victims. So What the police decide to do to get more resourceful is they partner up with Cake TV, the local news station, and they decide to place a subliminal message in a report on the BTK killer in an effort to get him to turn himself in. So this subliminal message included the text, now call the chief, in quotes, as well as an image of a pair of glasses. So these glasses were included because when BTK murdered Nancy Fox, there was a pair of glasses lying upside down on her dresser. And they thought that maybe they had been intentionally placed there. Like maybe it was some of his weird poetic shit he was trying to spin while he was trying to become the poetic fucking killer, which is one of his name options. But anyways, the police theorized that maybe if this guy saw a picture of these glasses, it might sort of instill some evoke some emotion, whether that's remorse or, uh, a com- like a compulsion to reach out. They were just hoping that that would happen. And this is the news report in which the subliminal messages and visuals were spliced in. Do you see any pattern to BTK's conduct? We have an individual who apparently has the uncontrollable desire to kill at times. What kind of leads do you have? Well, very honestly, we have no solid leads at all. So probably to the shock of no one listening right now, this plan was not a success. The police reported no increased volume of calls from BTK. In fact, this was a, this, nothing happened. But 
if you're putting subliminal messages in news reports, like you're getting really fucking desperate, but they only had so many resources due to technology limitations at their uh, disposal at this point. So they were doing everything they could. So at this point, news outlets started playing the audio of BTK's voice on the news with the hope that someone who knew the killer may recognize it. In, in the first day the recordings were played on repeat, the police received more than 110 tips. But as we know, these particular tips would not lead to the capture of BTK. Right, and at this point it was 1979, and Dennis Rader was 33 years old, and he had two young children. And this year he also graduated from the college with a bachelor's degree in administration of justice from Wichita University. And this is when we really observed the first quote-unquote BTK gap. The police department that had been plagued with the serial killer were baffled when the killings and correspondence just stopped. But why did he stop? Back then, they theorized that perhaps he died, maybe he had been jailed, or maybe he moved on and started killing elsewhere. We now know that it's totally possible for serial killers to stop killing when it suits them or for the sake of survival, but why did he stop in this situation in particular? We hear nothing from BTK between 1979 and 1985. But although he's inactive, the police are still working behind the scenes to identify him. A brand new BTK investigation is opened, and Lieutenant Ken Landwehr is one of the sex crime detectives assigned to work full-time on the case, and they call themselves the Ghostbusters, and they're going to use new techniques like computer database searches and profiling to identify him. By 1985, Raider was 40 years old. He was becoming more involved in his church, and once his son became old enough, Raider became a Boy Scout leader. Then on April 27th of 1985, BTK decided to come out of hiding. 53-year-old Marine Hedge, who lived just a few houses down from the Raider family, disappeared from her home. Marine's daughter and son-in-law were notified that she was missing after one of Marine's co-workers contacted them when Marine missed her shift at a local coffee shop. Marine's son-in-law then went to Marine's house to check on her. And there was no sign of her anywhere, and she didn't answer the door. The next morning, when they still hadn't heard from her, she was reported missing. So the police then canvassed Marine's home and observed outside that her phone lines had been cut. And her 1976 Monte Carlo was missing from the home. Every morning, Dennis Rader would wave to Marine Hedge on the street whenever he would see her outside. And after Marine's disappearance, he assured his family that they were safe and not to worry. But the truth was that Raider had killed her the previous night after he snuck away from his son's Boy Scout camping trip that he was chaperoning. He slipped out of his tent and slipped back. And he was back at the campsite before anyone even realized he was missing. Marine's car was discovered on May 2nd in the parking lot of the Brittany Shopping Center. The car had been there for several days. And a security guard noted that the car was in the parking lot at 9.05 p.m. on April 27th, which was the day that Marine was thought to have disappeared. The car appeared muddy in some parts, but it had been wiped clean around the trunk and the sides. It was locked and needed to be opened by a locksmith. The lower driver's side windshield was broken. And two bed covers, a purple bedspread, a tan curtain, and a pink Sears electric blanket were found inside the trunk. Searches for Marine were conducted, 
And then eight days later, the Park City police chief discovered the nude, decomposing body of Marine Hedge in a ditch that was commonly used to dispose of trash. Her body was covered with grass and weeds. Pantyhose knotted and a tight loop were found near her remains. The body had been there a while, so it was riddled with insects. She was conclusively identified using dental records. Marine had bruising to her left cheek and chin. Like the others, an autopsy would reveal her cause of death, and it was strangulation. And I remember that Mrs. Hedge, she was in her 50s. She was a widow. She lived like seven houses down from us and actually two next to my grandma. She lived between us. You can actually see her yard from my, my mom's mom. So we would walk by her and we'd say hi, you know, and I knew when I was six that she had gone missing. So she was missing for like 10 days and then they found her body out in the country strangled. So somehow at six, I knew that. Now, a six-year-old is not supposed to know these things. So either my parents were talking about it, which I know they were, and or I also heard it on the news because you know the news was on all the time in the 80s when you were a kid. It's impossible not to notice the shift in BCK's MO when looking at the Marine Hedge case. He just got fixated on the neighbor, knew she was an easy hit. But he changed the MO. So all the other victims he had left in their homes... With her, he he removed her body after he strangled her. So he did the same MO in the house and cut the phone line, waited in her closet for her to get home. But then he removed her body. And so that was not a BTK thing. And so they did look at BTK, but they didn't match it because he had changed that MO just a little bit. And he only changed it because she was too close to our home. So the police actually did come by and interview my mom one day. I was there asking if we had seen anything. And I remember that. We all know that since Dennis Rader's capture, he conducted a number of interviews, and one such interview was with Catherine Ramsland. She eventually wrote a book called, quote, Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, and eventually Carrie read this book. And so my dad even is interviewed in Ramsland's book saying he basically got off on me having night terrors after the murder, the lady was murdered down the street. Like he was worried about me. This is my dad, like in one sentence. I was worried about my daughter because she was scared that the lady had been murdered, and I also basically got off on it. The next time BTK made his presence known was on September 16th of 86. It was 11.54 a.m. when a man named Gordon Weggerly dialed 911. The man sounded completely distraught. And he was screaming, Vicky, 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 Vicky. Oh, God. Oh, no, no, no. Through his sobs, he described coming home for lunch and then walking inside his house. And then he saw his baby sitting on the floor. He played with his baby for a second, greeted the baby, acknowledged the baby, said hello. He assumed that his wife had run into one of the other back rooms in the house briefly, whether it be to the kitchen to grab a drink or to the bedroom to grab some laundry or who knows assumed everything was fine, that she was in the back of the house. But when he went into the master bedroom that he shared with his wife, he found her tied up on the bedroom floor. When officers arrived, Gordon was on the front porch of his home. He was crying and he was banging on the walls. And police then entered the bedroom as well, and they observed the body of Vicki Weggerly. She was wedged in a three-foot space between the bedroom wall and the bed. Her hands were tied behind her back, 
Her feet were bound with leather laces. And when Vicky's body was moved, her left arm fell free from the rope that bound her wrists. There was a small pocket knife lying next to her head. And this knife was actually Gordon's and he had used it to try to cut the nylon stocking and leather laces that were wrapped around his wife's neck off of her. And then he had left the knife there after he was done. Vicky's jeans were open and her underwear was exposed and her blue top and bra were shoved up, exposing her breasts. And Vicky's gold Monte Carlo was missing from the scene, which prompted this memory for Gordon. When he was driving home from lunch, he turned on his street and he saw a man in a gold Monte Carlo drive past him. And he didn't really think much of it at the time due to how common these cars were back then. But now he realized that he had seen his wife's killer in the gold Monte Carlo that was stolen from them. And this realization was pure agony for Gordon, realizing that he had missed the opportunity to possibly save his life's wife by mere minutes. And he said, quote, if I had been there five minutes earlier, maybe I could have done something. And inside the home in the dining room, officers observed a large canvas purse and a chair near a piano. They also found a piece of pantyhose with several knots and strands of blonde hair, which were collected from the floor of the master bedroom. And a pair of stockings with knots and a braided leather shoelace with knots were also collected from the scene. News that the BTK killer had struck again broke almost immediately. And news sources blasted information about the suspect leaving the scene in Vicky's Gold 1978 Monte Carlo. One man who was listening to the radio at the time was a guy named Ron Sparkman. He was listening to KFDI as he made his way to the grocery store. When he turned southbound onto a street, he noticed a gold Monte Carlo parked on the side of the road. The time was 12.30 p.m., just over an hour after Vicky's body had been discovered. The man ran into the grocery store and called 911 to alert the police. As soon as the police arrived at the car, they identified it as belonging to Gordon Wegerly, Vicky's husband. It was only a few blocks away from the crime scene. BTK had now narrowly escaped twice in the commission of this murder. They were so close, but so, so far. Vicky's autopsy revealed that she had petechial hemorrhaging in her eyes and on her face. She had abrasions to her right ear, to her right cheek, and to her jawline. And she had clear ligature marks on her neck and her hyoid bone was broken. She had binding marks to her wrists. She had a gouge mark on the back of her left hand, suggesting she'd put up a fight. And she had discoloration on her knuckles. Vicky clearly had fought for her life, and law enforcement took fingernail scrapings from under her nails, even though they didn't yet know really what they could do with it. But unlike the 70s, things were moving forward with DNA technology. And while it was still hard to do... It was happening more and more, and it was rapidly improving. And the next year, it would start being implemented in criminal cases. Vicky's autopsy revealed that like BTK's other victims, she too had been killed as a result of asphyxiation and strangulation. Following Vicky's murder, BTK moves into another quote-unquote gap period where no murders are really attributed to him. But he did correspond once more in January of 1988 when he sent a letter to a woman named Mary Fager. Mary was a widow because her husband, Melvin, and her two daughters had been murdered. Ten-year-old Sherry and 16-year-old Kelly had been found in an above-ground hot tub. 
Sherry had been drowned. Kelly had been strangled and put in the hot tub eight hours after Sherry. And Melvin, the dad, had been shot. So BTK hadn't committed these murders himself. But in this letter, he expressed admiration for the person who did. The letter included a poem called, quote, Oh God, he put Kelly and Sherry in the tub. After BTK wrote this letter, it would be five more years before he'd emerge again. So as far as what Dennis Rader was doing after this and prior to him hitting again, in July of 88, he stopped working at ADT. He got fired. And remember, he'd been working at the security company since 1974. So in those years, he was perfecting the art of burglary. And we see this over and over again with serial killers moonlighting as cops, moonlighting as security guards. And I say moonlighting because, and that's intentional, because generally speaking, the thing that consumes their mind, much like a full-time job, would would be serial killing and their, their lust and their unusual fantasies and things like that. Another thing that's interesting is that Carrie theorized that any time there was a blow to Dennis Rader's ego, BTK would sort of pop up. So being laid off, being fired would be a contributing factor to Dennis Rader's sort of like agitation and that BTK would need an outlet as a result of some sort of like perceived rejection, which mm-hmm. being laid off over, for he was at this company for over 10 years and, you know, that would probably eat at him. Right after he stopped working for ADT, Dennis Rader began working for the U.S. Census Bureau. And this was a terrible job for someone like him because it allowed him to travel around the country doing God knows what, focusing on God knows who and God knows where. And my dad wanted to be a cop. I'm pretty sure my dad sat for the police exam. My dad was literally sitting in criminal justice at night studying his own crime scenes. And really enjoying that, by the way. And my dad was a ADT security person. And then he lost his job with ADT. Then he then he got a job as a census, which was perfect because he could travel all over and be in people's homes, you know. So he did all sorts of stalking and breaking and entering. And he got to stay in hotels and play his hotel games that he's known for. There's pictures and stuff. So again, he would do that for a while and then it wouldn't be enough. So when he would come up to college, like he would come up without my mom, he would be on business trips, you know, and he would take me to eat like down in Aggieville, like where the bars are. Was he, was he stalking like college girls at that time? Probably. I don't know. In 1991, Dennis Rader begins his job as the Park City Compliance Supervisor, and he's enforcing laws about animal control and inoperable vehicles. And this department has only two employees, but it was this multifunctional department. He was also in charge of issuing permits and issuing citations if people did things without permits. And in this position, neighbors recalled him as sometimes being overzealous and extremely strict. And one neighbor in particular complained that Raider actually euthanized her dog for zero reason. So it really sounds like he was like flexing his power any chance he really got. By New Year's of 1991, the terror that was BTK was fading from view becoming a distant nightmare from long ago. No murders matching his M.O. had been committed, nor had he taken credit for any murders, nor had he corresponded with police. But that was all about to change. 
It was 1249 on January 19, 1991, when Sheriff Deputy Gorman Shaw was dispatched to the scene of a possible burglary. The man who reported the crime was named Thomas Ray, and he said that the owner of the home was missing. Her name was Dolores Davis, otherwise known as D. Mr. Ray explained that he was a mechanic, and he was supposed to work on D's car that day, but she wasn't home and he couldn't reach her. And Mr. Ray explained that there were some characteristics of the home that were pretty unusual. When he initially arrived, he immediately noticed that the outdoor light was on and the curtains were still drawn, which was really strange because Dee was usually an early riser. Her car was in the driveway and Dee never left her car out. Mr. Ray entered the home through the garage. He made his way through the kitchen and he noticed the phone had been pulled off from the wall jack. He made his way into the living room and he saw broken glass and a cinder block on the floor. And there was also broken glass and a cinder block in the master bedroom. And all of the sheets had been stripped from the bed and were missing. The police searched the home and the surrounding area and learned that one of Dee's jewelry boxes was missing from the scene. There was a lot of broken glass in the home suggesting a possible struggle had taken place. And oddly, this is super weird, the keys to Dee's car were found on the roof of their home. Police also found a rug in the trunk of her car. And outside, police made another odd discovery, a purple hairnet in the bushes. In the discovery of this hairnet, I actually, I didn't dig too deep into it. I did like a quick couple Googles. and But it's like, I feel like he started reading and hearing that DNA was a thing. So the Grote yeah. Phantom decided he'd wear a hairnet to make himself just fucking bulletproof, he thought. Uh, like, oh, I'm going to like nip this DNA thing in the in the bud. Like, I'm going to wear a hairnet. Make this guy's a fucking loser. But anyways. Maybe you just so liked that, it, too. Yeah, maybe he liked <laughs> it. But that was my, you know, analysis of the hairnet that was discovered. So later, the blankets and sheets that were missing from Dee's bed were found in a calvert on the side of the road nearby. Based on all these very chilling characteristics presented at Dee's home, the police believe that she had, in fact, been abducted. And they were right, because on February 1st of 91, a 15-year-old boy who was walking his dog discovered Dee's body. Dee's body was wrapped in a blanket. She was wearing a nightgown, and her breasts were exposed. And there was a piece of cloth wrapped around her neck. Her legs were tied together at the knees. We've seen this before. A blanket or comforter was on the ground next to her. And there was a snuggle sack laid nearby her as well. And when this 15-year-old boy made this discovery, he was so disturbed by what he saw that he ran home in the wrong direction, just frantic and, and terrorized. And Carrie can recall what life was like and what her father was doing in 1991 when he murdered Dee Davis. And so then he didn't murder Mrs. Davis in 91, and he had lost his job. My mom was, had been in the hospital. He was very depressed. I, so I can, I can match these things up now. And, uh, he basically murdered just as that, like that outlet. And again, he changed that MO. He murdered her in her house, but then he drove her in her car and a couple different places. So it took him a really, I think it almost took him a month to find her. And so again, I don't think they even looked at BTK necessarily for that one because it had been so long, but then he stopped after that one. There's one piece of evidence that was found on the body of Dee Davis that we hadn't previously mentioned. Dee's killer had placed a very 
eerie-looking porcelain mask on Dee's face after he placed her body under this bridge. And the mask was painted to have fair skin, bright red lips, and very dark eyebrows. It looked like an old China doll. This begs the question, why did BDK choose to do this in this instance when he hadn't done anything like this before? We don't know. But what we do know is that Dee Davis would ultimately be BTK's final known murder victim. And in a strange symbolic way, we have to ask, did this act of leaving this mask with these body represent the first step in BTK's own unmasking? Whether it was intentional or not, the answer is yes, even though it would be another 11 years before his identity would be revealed. Next week, we'll take you through Dennis Rader's final years as BTK his crescendo in his correspondence with police, the narcissism that would be his downfall, and the life-shattering moment that Carrie found out that her father was BTK. And of course, we'll also get into Dennis Rader's arrest and his subsequent confessions. Until then, a huge, huge thanks to Carrie. And make sure you come back for next week for our conclusion of our three-part series of BTK because we really are saving the best for last. And, you know, BTK is one of the most infamous serial killers of our time, but no story is too small or insignificant for us to tell. So please email us if you have a story to tell. Hello at the first degree podcast dot com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. Please join us in our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the Facebook search bar. We're talking true crime all the time and stick around because we're going to kill some time and answer some of your questions. And until then, remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not (laughs) not that that close. Hot dog day. Right? Hot dog day? Is that it? Happy Happy Grand Up Meat Day. Bye. Sources for today's episode includes court documents, the Wichita Eagle, Kansas.com, The Atlantic, The Associated Press, and as always, our first three guests are always our largest source. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
All right. Well, welcome to another episode of Killing Time, or how we like to call it, KT for short. And we have had so many Katies in our Facebook group try to elect themselves to be our mascot. And I think we should have a competition. I think they're all the mascot now. I think it's one collective Katie. It's just if you're Katie, you are the mascot. We don't want to hold like some kind of uh, trials. Yeah. The more the merrier. All the okay, Katie's well, are anybody, anybody named Katie is now our mascot of Killing Time. So for this week's episode of Killing Time, a couple weeks ago, we had asked the members of our Facebook group to write us like uh, quarantine-centric type of questions. And I think when we first did it, we only got through one question because we always get sidetracked and go on some sort of a tangent about nothing. Um, so we're going to answer some more questions. Are you guys ready? Born ready. Okay. So this is a good one to start. Christina Johnson says, what is your first thought of the day when you wake up? I can't be honest about that. Yeah, we can't be honest. Yeah, that's not. All right. I'm going to. Sure you can. Oh, God. Yeah. What's the, what's the, yeah? What's the word for first how, how do you thought of the day, or like first thing yeah. you do in the morning? Because I'm I'm not really thinking in the morning. Okay, what's the first thing that you do in the morning? I check my phone. I check my phone, and then I do whatever draws attention first: the top text, the top alert. That's usually what I do. I usually look at the skim that email that you know email mm-hmm. that comes. I look at the skim. Um, I check like all the websites for Jonathan Adler canisters because that's what I'm obsessed with collecting <laughs> now, like a fucking psychopath. Because they're hard, the vintage ones are hard to find. I check like Mercari, I check Poshmark, I check eBay, like first thing every morning, and then I get up and I start obsessing about crazy shit. That's me, <laughs> Billy. Okay, Billy, what's yours? That is my truth. I, yeah, no, I definitely look at the phone first. Check text, check email, uh, check um, any of the Facebook pages of cases that I'm running to see if I got any tips in, and then just start from there. And then, um, then you're just on on to the day. So I, when I wake up in the morning, I'll do like the checky thing, whatever. Then I make I have to do everything in a very specific order, or else my morning gets very <laughs> thrown. And you know, and then my day is just going to be off. Bless you, Jared. I'm only o- I'm only OCD, literally only o- OCD with my morning routine and my nighttime routine, and then everything else in the day can just be like a clusterfuck, and I'll be totally fine. But I'll wake up, make a coffee, brush my teeth, pee, pick up the coffee, sit in bed, and then my new morning routine of drinking my coffee while sitting in bed is either going on the coronavirus subreddit or checking houses on Redfin. And then that is how I begin my day, my zen. Oh, okay. Wow. That's not that's not a crazy routine. And then all the little animals from the woods come and dress you. Yeah. I'm like, sing it. <laughs> like Snow White. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know me. I'm just like chipper as fuck like that. Right. Okay. Here is our next question. Brittany asks, what is your favorite thing about one another? This is going to be a bonding question, guys. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Who's going to go first? I don't know. 
Billy, you go first. About like the best thing. I'm not. I'm not going first. I'll go. God, guys. Jeez. I'll go second. I'll go second. Okay. My favorite thing about Billy Jensen is he is so unapologetically himself and really um, embraces these weird qualities that I really enjoy about you that make you so distinctly you. And with anybody else, a lot of these qualities would be strange. Yeah, creepy. (laughs) You're not. No, you're not at all. Like your love for Disney, super fucking creepy and anybody else but you. But like, I love that you like double down on the things that you love and like the quirky qualities about you. And and I think it's, I I like it. Okay. Thank you. Hell yeah. Welcome. And Alexis, I just love everything about you. (laughs) I love everything about you too. This was so easy. I can't even pick a favorite. You're my best friend. I love you so much. We have so much fun. We do everything together. You know, all my deepest, darkest secrets. You keep them. You brought Jared into my life. I love your parents. I love everything about you. <laughs> like, you're just like my sister. I know. I just, you're my favorite. Every time anything happens, I want to call you first. You're the best. So, sorry, Billy. You have to f- try to compliment Jack <laughs> that I just did. <laughs> I'm going to have to. Yeah. I'm going to have to follow that. All right. <laughs> Go ahead, try. Go ahead, Billy. We're just waiting for you. No, yeah, no. Uh, what I love about Jack is her that she is nothing sort of flusters her. Um, uh, Jack, you just sort of if 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 you're around Jack, she just is the most sort of go with the flow type of person that I've ever really been around, Aww. and that's pretty cool. Yeah, so I really I really dig that. And then there's like the creativity stuff and the entrepreneurial stuff and all of that, which is really cool as well. But you can you can do a lot of those things and still um and be really like uptight or whatever, but you're just like, yeah, whatever. Which is <laughs> cool. She has, but then you get she has, fun. Yeah. <laughs> she has attractive apathy where she's apathetic mm. about all the right things and not apathetic about the things that matter, but she she really does know how to like nail it and like she doesn't sweat the small stuff really she'll be like well and yeah when i'm like jack this happened she's like and why do you care i'm like that's a fair point (laughs) you're like you know why do i care i don't care yeah billy alexis what's your favorite thing about alexis Linkletter? I think the the big question is what do I not like about Alexis Linkletter? Oh, the I, there's at least the right there's at least a few things that I can think of. <laughs> no, I think just um, I I think my favorite thing about Alexis is her her drive and her constantly being on. Especially, I've never been I've worked with so many people in the true crime community, but Alexis really does. Is surrounded by it all the time. Um, uh, I think she ingests more true crime than anybody that I know, and she produces more true crime than anybody that I know. Literally, so she's constantly producing, and then when she's not producing, she's ingesting. So it's it's incredibly hard to keep up with her too. I think that this. I know that that I know that we make this point and we talk about this all the time, but it is actually unbelievable the amount of work that Alexis does. Like this podcast, it's like, yeah, we're all spending a couple hours recording it right now, but Alexis is the one that writes 
the entire script, researches everything, does the interview. Trust me, I've tried to help her. Does not happen. Like she is a one woman show. And it's like, and you can't like, you can't give it up because you're better at doing it than like anybody yeah. else. And it's just like, I'll just get in the way. I remember the one time I tried to help you. I like spent like <laughs> an hour looking up like one little thing that I would say. <laughs> The, the the thing is, is you guys are so fucking sweet for saying this because you know all of my self-esteem comes from my productivity. <laughs> so thank you guys. <laughs> you are a three on the Enneagram, by the <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I really, that's so sweet of you both to say. But the one thing I'll say is like, it's such a hard thing to share. Like if you're writing the script, it's hard to, it's hard mm-hmm. to split that up. Like if one of, Billy wrote the, one of the Black Dahlia scripts by himself. And I don't remember why mm-hmm. or what was happening, but you did a great, he's great. It's just, it's hard to split that up. It's kind of like a one person flow research process, but no, there can be too many cooks in the kitchen. You way know, too many like, cooks yeah, in the kitchen. And a, you camel guys, is, a camel is a horse designed by committee, you know? Right. But like Jack, you've read more true books, true crime books than I have. And Billy, like, obviously you have years more experience than I do, but you guys humor me by just sort of allowing me to like, you know, control the flow of our podcast. And and I'm so grateful. And you know how much I love it. And I love you guys. Well, I think that there is also just this understanding of like, we each have our own talents and we know how to stay in our own lanes. And if we, if we try to like go in a different person's lane and do the skills that the other person has, it's just like, why are you over here? (laughs) Yeah. That me and Billy have had some, uh, we've bumped, we've, we've gotten some collisions over that. (laughs) Yes. Like, <laughs> Jack just lets me be crazy and then we'll change the 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 outline and just not say anything. Billy be like, I changed this because of this. I'm like, why do I need to know? Just fucking change it. <laughs> well, because, because, so you so you won't do it in the future. No, my personality. I can't handle that. Just change it. No. <laughs> the best thing, the best thing ever is when Billy does make a change, and then it might be in like an Alexis part, and then she'll uh-huh. read it and it she'll get all like f- flus not flustered, like, but you like did you change this? Did you change your- this? He's like, Yeah, I changed it for you know, because it would be blah 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 blah. And you're like, No, now it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we cut all of that out, but it is amusing and it does happen. But I will say, oh, I didn't go with my favorite thing about Billy yet. Oh god. Um, we're going back. My favorite thing about Billy is that he is really, um, as a friend and as someone, if you become close with Billy, he's very thoughtful. He'll remember something you, he'll remember something you said like fucking in passing months ago and then like see something and grab it for you. Like he, he sent Jack a book out of nowhere, you know, I think a month or so ago, like he's just sort of, Oh, he's got his antenna up to be considerate whenever he sees an opportunity based on, you know, um, and it's, it's unassuming cause Billy's like a big guy and he's like true crimey dark dude, darkness, very thoughtful and, and really Best gift giver I've ever met. Best gift giver. And gift giving is something that men are usually terrible at. So that is a very unique skill for somebody to have. I've literally had to teach Jared the correct gifts to give me that work for me. <laughs> but it's taken two years. But like you innately just have such a great, you're just naturally so good at it. And that's, it's such a very unique quality, especially for a man. Yeah. And thank you. 
I mean, Billy is also really passionate about what he does. I mean, I think everybody here on this podcast is like we all have our hands in a lot of things, but certainly Billy is consistent in his pursuit of helping victims and um, justice. And I and I usually would be like sarcastic when I was saying like pursuit of yeah. justice. I always never say justice. Him. Yeah, <laughs> he always, I mean, whenever, I we, sometimes like. When we're when when we're uh, having uh, the drinks or something, and we want to do a toast, sometimes I say to justice, and she just looks at me and rolls her eyes and laughs. Oh, like there's a that's and a then throws the drink in my cheesy face. Cheesy thing, cheesy thing Cheese ever. Ball. But I think he, maybe <laughs> deep down you do actually mean that, which is another redeemable thing. Yeah, yeah. He does. It's just so easy to make fun of sometimes, you know. Yes. Billy Slenderman Jensen. <laughs> Are you going to change flash. your middle name to Slenderman? No. Um, I think we've we're at about fifteen minutes. I think minutes. we're at fifteen. I think we should, maybe we should call it. All right, we're we going to call, call it. it. It's. I'm going to wait till fifteen exactly on the dot. Bye. Beep. Boop. 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 Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style, and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.